excited to dig in. Philippians 2. Uh, hear the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Uh, I'm going to back up and, and read. I'm going to include a few verses from Kevin's teaching last week. So we're going to read verses 1 to 11, and then we'll dive in to the second half. But here is Philippians 2. Paul writes this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here our passage this week begins. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And church, this is the word of the Lord. We can respond, thanks be to God. Yeah, it's good. All right. In our studies in Philippians, we have been thinking through our call to be partners in the gospel. Okay? Be partners in the gospel. And so this week, as we get to our passage, verses 5 to 11, we're going to see three things that will help us with this. And this is going to be our outline. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, we're going to see the mind of Christ, the descent of Christ, and the name of Christ. Now, we're going to look at these three interrelated ideas, and really, they fill out what Kevin taught last week. So if you missed last week, go home, listen to the, the teaching, and you'll be able to put it all together. But if we want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, if we want to stand firm and, and strive side by side, if we want to live into our call to be partners in the gospel, well then, we need to have the mind of Christ, we need to follow the descent of Christ, and we need to rejoice in the name of Christ. And friends, if we get this mind in us, it will not only transform our community life together, but it really could revolutionize the world. And so we're just, yeah, let's dig in. We're going to love this. The mind of Christ, starting with verse 5. Okay, our passage, it only has one command. Okay, one command right at the beginning. If you are the practical type, uh, you like to have, you know, action items after every meeting. Well, here it is right out of the gate. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There it is. That's the command. That's, that's the action step. Now, we need to back up a little bit because this passage, like I said, follows on the heels of Kevin's teaching last week. This one command to have this mind, well, it follows... The commands to do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. That is, this command to have this mind, 
it fits within the greater call to unity through humility. As those who belong to Christ, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we are to live out our unity through humility. And Paul says that happens by having this mind. Now, if your Bible is open, you'll notice that this is actually the third time in chapter 2 that he mentions this mind. So if you look, just look up the page, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. There's a mind, a way of thinking that we're supposed to share that will unite us. But we need to ask, what, what does that mean? What does that mean to be of the same mind? Does unity require uniform agreement on everything? And, and what are the limits to that? N.T. Wright has a great uh, kind of a comical hypothetical that I enjoyed. He said, you know, imagine for a second a church and, and, and person A, okay, I need to be of the same mind. So they, they work hard to, to change their mind to agree with person B. At the exact same moment that person B says, well, okay, maybe I need to adapt and, 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 and get over some things so that I can agree with person C. All at the same time that person C is, is working and struggling really hard to agree, again, with the position of person A that, that just changed. Is that what it means to be of the same mind? If that were the case, you'd go around and around in this comical kind of party trick in uh, and, and just, just a circular merry-go-round. No, that can't be. I love what he says next. He says, that's not what Paul has in mind. And then this is key. Unity by itself can't be the final aim. After all, unity is possible among thieves, and adulterers, and many other types. We could, we could add to that. We could say there was a, a type of unity in the Third Reich. There's a form of unity you can find in, in totalitarian dictatorships. And so Paul, he's calling us to something else, to a unity of purpose, not necessarily uniformity of opinion or thought. Now our passage helps unlock what he means. In verse 2. In verse 5, he says this. He says, have this mind. Have this mind. There is a particular mind. He's clarifying which mind they are to share, or rather, whose mind. And it's Christ's. We live as citizens. We strive side by side by having his mind in us. Now get this. The type of unity that you have will depend on the type of mind that you share. Let me say that again. The type of unity that you have will depend on the type of mind that you share. If you share the mind of Caesar, if you share the mind of Napoleon, if you share the mind of Hitler, well, there will be one type of unity that's cultivated among you. If you share the mind of your cutthroat CEO, well, it creates a particular type of work environment. But if you share the mind of Christ, well, it creates a different kind of unity, a totally different kind of world, a unity fueled by self-giving instead of grasping, and it becomes a totally different organism. Paul's saying, do you want to live as citizens? Do you want to maintain the blood-bought unity of Christ's kingdom? Do you want to strive side by side for the faith? Well, then you need to have this mind in you. It needs to shape your outlook on life. It needs to shape the way you live. Well, this brings us to our, our next point. Having the mind of Christ means following the descent of Christ. Verses 6 to 9. Having told us to get this mind in us, 
to let it shape our thinking and our entire view of the world, he then tells us or shows us what this mind is. Now, this, these verses are some of the most holy ground that you can tread in the entire Bible. Because Paul will give us not just a basic outline of the gospel with its major points. I mean, it almost looks like a creed or a hymn in the way that it's structured. But in doing so, he lets us into the mind and motivation of Christ as he's doing it. We're taken behind the curtain, as it were, to behold the inner thoughts of Christ as he works out the incarnation and the atonement. It's staggering. Paul writes this, says, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Wow. Paul says, have the mind of Christ which led him here. Be like that. Take that road with one another. Together, follow the descent of Christ. Now, there is a, a ton of debate surrounding this passage among New Testament scholars and whatnot, especially regarding what it means to empty, Jesus to empty himself. But, but so many of the interpretive questions, they can be resolved by seeing in the passage two Old Testament images, okay, two Old Testament pictures that are kind of assumed or behind the passage. Think with me. When you hear the phrases, the words of likeness, something is in the likeness of something else, and it's linked up with obedience, and it's linked up with, with grasping equality with God, does anything come to mind? Likeness, being made in the likeness, obedience, grasping, taking. Anybody think of anyone? Yeah, yeah, Genesis 1 to 3, Adam and Eve, exactly, yes. They were created in his image after his likeness. They were commanded to obey and not eat of the tree, but seeing that it would make them wise like God, they grasped at the fruit. They took and ate it, and the result was death for all of humanity. Well, Paul, he's inverting that image a little bit in painting Christ as a better Adam. So Adam, Adam was already like God, yet he tried to be like God apart from God. He kind of stiff arms God, and he tries to grasp the fruit so that he can be like him. The man made in God's likeness grasped and fell headlong into bondage to sin and death. Well, the eternal son, he wasn't just like God, he was God, yet he did not you know, hold on to or grasp for equality with God, but instead did something crazy. He became like Adam. God was born in the likeness of men in order to serve Adam's race. See, Adam, again, he tried to grasp likeness to God apart from God, yet Christ in order to take on man-likeness to be like them, poured himself out in order to get close to us. Now, most shocking of all, Adam's disobedience earned death, but Christ's obedience meant dying that death. Do you see the picture of Adam behind her passage? Well, the second Old Testament image behind this passage 
is that of the suffering servant uh, from the prophet Isaiah. So if you read through the Old Testament, you get to the book of Isaiah. In the latter half of, of Isaiah, a figure appears who will represent the people and sacrifice himself for the sake of the people by bringing them life and salvation and freedom. And he's often called the suffering servant. Maybe you're familiar with him from passages like Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that that brought us peace was placed upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Well, later in that very chapter, Isaiah 53, 12, we read this. It will come up on the screen. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant pours himself out to death to give life to the people. And so here in verse 7, Jesus pours himself out, taking the form of a servant, and becomes obedient to death for us. Jesus is the better Adam by becoming the suffering servant. Now in our passage, an uh, uh, important word is the word form. Okay, form. That word doesn't mean outward appearance as if the eternal Son of God only looked like God. No, no, no. It means the essential qualities, characteristics of the thing. So so this passage is one of the clearest articulations we have of the divinity of Christ. Though the Son was God, the, the amazing thing is, he then became, in essential qualities and characteristics, a servant. He took on the form of a servant. From the form of God to the form of a servant. We could translate that word servant as slave. He became a slave for us. And this was lived out to the uttermost by death on the cross. Which the Philippians, who were Roman citizens, they would know that the cross, that was an execution so shameful, was reserved only for slaves and servants. Jesus was a servant, a slave to the very end. So Jesus is the better Adam and the suffering servant of Isaiah. Now, if digging into those two images was a little thick for you, that's okay. Let's try to zero in on the point, okay? There's two things for us to highlight. First, the mind of Christ is demonstrated by the descent of Christ. It's demonstrated by pouring out instead of grasping, okay? Christ was everything, and Christ had everything, and he poured it out for you. For you. The mind of Christ is demonstrated by pouring out instead of grasping, by emptying instead of clinging tight. Now, if we're honest, this is so hard for us to have this mind. I mean, the command to have this mind, it, it, it seems like a real challenge because we have spent our entire lives with the mind of the first Adam. I mean, we're afraid to die like this. We're afraid to descend like this. We're afraid to pour out because subconsciously we believe that to do so, well, it's final. All sales are final. You know, we have the ultimate FOMO, fear of missing out. We think, I can't possibly give of myself in this way. I can't possibly spend myself on this because if I do, I risk losing these things that I'm giving away forever. If I give, I'm going to miss out. I don't get to have them. 
If I, if I, if I empty, I will lose in the end. We do a little cost-benefit analysis, and we're just not sure it's worth it. We protect, we grasp, we cling, because we need to hold on to these good things, lest we lose out in the end. Just like Adam, we want to be equal with God in his permanence, in his self-sufficiency, in his eternal bliss. We want to hold on, try to maintain, try to be like God in terms of what we think we need and see. And the irony of ironies is we grasp, we hold on to that which will be freely given to us when we live with him and for him and like him, just like Adam. But this is why the link up with the suffering servant is so good. When we see the triumph of death in Christ, when we see that by his wounds we are healed and we see the attending promise of eternity, then we can know that we will miss out on nothing. We'll miss out on nothing. And therefore, we're set free to love this way, to truly die. We can descend. We can proclaim with Paul that to live is Christ and to die, well, it's gain. I can give. I can pour out. I can let go knowing I will not miss out. Second, the descent of Christ shows us that his, his mind well, it's active, not passive. This doesn't happen to him in Philippians. He steps into it. Now, there's seven verbs in this descent. Okay, the number of perfection. It's great. Seven action steps he takes on this downward trajectory of incarnation and substitutionary death. And all of them are active, him initiating, except the middle two, for which the reasons are obvious. You can't give birth to yourself. Okay? Uh, so he was... You know, being born, it's, that, that's a passive one. But the point is that Jesus chooses this all the way down. He steps into it all the way down. This is the mind of Christ. This is the mind that Paul says we should have in order to maintain our unity and strive side by side for the gospel. The call here is not just to believe in Christ, but by believing to become like him. Not just believe in the gospel, but by believing to live it out. We're called to have the mind of Christ and follow the descent of Christ. But make no mistake, Jesus takes seven steps down, all the way down. There's no one and done. We don't do one act of selflessness and then, you know, wipe our hands, pat ourselves on the back and call it good. No, no. Often, we... You know, we, have to, we choose to die, to descend, to pour out. And then, on the other end of it, we get rewarded with another opportunity to further descend, to die again, to pour out again. Paul Miller has a great book I'd, I'd commend to you called The J-Curve. He talks about dying and rising with Jesus. But in it, he says, the love we choose almost always draws us into the love we don't choose. The love we choose, yeah, okay, yes, I'm going to love this person this way, and it always draws us into love that we might not have chosen on the front end. So a, a big example of this, marriage. A beautiful bride and groom stand up in front of a, a crowd and a, and a pastor, and they, they look into each other's eyes and like, I choose that. Yes, I choose that. And they, they make some vows and say, that's the love that I choose, to love this person. But then they say, in sickness and in health. 
And maybe a year later, maybe five years later, maybe 30 years later, the other that they chose comes down with a terminal illness. And they, they have to walk with this person through this, this terrible disease that will ravage their body. At some point, this person they love won't even appreciate the love that they give as they care for them because they're just so racked with pain. And they'll, they'll keep loving. The love that they chose on the altar will lead them and draw them into a love they might not have chosen had they known. They said those words, but I don't know if they knew. Okay, maybe a, a less extreme example, more mundane example. After church, you're talking and someone comes to you and you see, wow, they're kind of a little fragile on the verge of tears. They need some care. Or you're looking at your watch like the family's waiting. We're going out to lunch. Like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to serve. I'm going to pour myself out. I'd rather be gone, but I'm going to pour myself out. I'm going to talk to this person. You hear them out. You, you counsel. You pray with them. You have this sweet moment of ministry where you've just given yourself to this person, and it's this, this sweet moment. And as you walk out of the car, you're like, wow, I, I poured myself out to them. It feels so good. And you get to the car, and what happens? Your, your wife and kids are like, where were you? We've been waiting for 10 minutes. We're starving. And the kids are crying and punching each other in the back. And in that moment, you can say, I was doing the Lord's work. Or... You die again, and, and you descend, and you pause, and you take a deep breath, because you're, now you're on edge, and you say, wow, you know, you're right, I'm so sorry. I made, I made you wait, I'm, I'm sorry, and you receive, and you descend. You're willing to love without the appreciation, oh, if only they knew how holy you are, you know? No, no, no. You don't push that on them. You receive, and you die again. The love you chose in the moment draws you into now a love that you may not have chosen, the, the anger and hanger of your family. Following Christ on this descent, having this mind, reshapes our very approach to the world. So, so when we kicked off this, this letter, we said there's two big themes. There's tension inside the church, some sort of conflict, we don't really know what it is, inside the community, but there's also opposition from outside the community. And the mind of Christ radically reshapes both. So within the church, when we have the mind of Christ, and we follow his descent, we no longer have to grasp, to hold on, to cling to our reputation, to our stuff, to our time, to our money, to our hearts. We can give freely. We can actively look for ways to be charitable, to assume the best in others, to look for ways that we can pour out. We can be open-handed, generous, not just with our time or resources, but also with our attitudes and our methods or our ways of doing things. We can allow others to do things in their way without feeling threatened. I mean, how many churches split over how you organize the spoons in the kitchen? You know, like, it comes down to the way of doing things. No, 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 we let that go. You don't get that joke, you've never been with a church lady. Um, okay. We can allow others to do things without feeling threatened if we're willing to descend and die. Well, then we will risk, if we're willing to have the mind of Christ, we will risk others being appreciated more than we are. And we'll celebrate them. And we'll even, you know, push them up. Even if it means that we get celebrated less, we will go down in order to push them up. And what happens? The church will grow and thrive. And sometimes we will be appreciated too for our humility. And sometimes we will be elevated in a reciprocal way. But get this, this is key, we don't have to be. If we're willing to pour out, we don't have to 
wait for that reciprocation. We will still give. Because if we're not appreciated or, or feel the reciprocation, we get to descend with Christ again and again. So imagine a first century Philippian. You know, this is a cultured, astute Roman citizen who's been raised with a mind towards self-advancement and self-protection and honor. And they find themselves walking into this little church community in Philippi where people have the mind of Christ. What would they think? What would they see? Would they even get what's going on? It would be shocking. But maybe a little bit appealing? What is this weird group of people and how they treat each other? Or fast forward. Imagine a 21st century Camerian, okay, who is immersed in a cancel culture, who's terrified of, of receiving heat or, or garbage from the world around them, and so they self-protect and they hedge and they, you know, carefully curate their outward personas that the world won't sling mud at them. And they walk in here, and maybe, just maybe, they see a group of people with the mind of Christ. What will they think? Who are these people? What, what is this community? I don't recognize this. Imagine what that would be like. It would be amazing. So having the mind of Christ, following his descent, it reshapes our community life together. And it empowers us to maintain the unity for the sake of the gospel. But it also equips us to walk out into an unsympathetic world. All of a sudden, we go into the world expecting opportunities to descend and die, whether that be metaphorical or literal. Okay, that was Paul, both metaphorical and literal. He rejoiced in his imprisonment. He said to die is gain, knowing that that was a real possibility. That's not just, you know, a word picture. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that he views his being thrown in jail as partaking in grace. He's experiencing grace by being thrown in jail? What? Then in chapter 129, last week, he says to the Philippians, it's been granted to you. The literal word is grace. It's been graced to you, to the Philippians, that they should suffer for Christ's sake. It's, it's God's grace that they get to suffer? What? How can Paul say these things? It's because he has the mind of Christ. When you have that mind, you begin to see every instance of suffering, of cost, as an opportunity to follow Christ on this descent. Now let me be clear. Paul was not a masochist. Okay? He wanted out of prison. You read the book of Acts, he, he employs the means available to him to get out of rough situations. He doesn't, you know, want to go suffer, you know, for Jesus' sake and, and whip himself and wear shoes with glass in it or something like that, as if somehow his suffering earns anything. No, that's not him. He wanted out. He didn't want to die. But at the same time, he saw every one of these opportunities to descend as an opportunity to have the mind of Christ, to follow Christ on this road, to experience Christ in the midst of it and thereby experience and grow in Christ-likeness. He calls it partaking in grace because it's an opportunity for God to make him like Jesus. Now, it's 
bonkers to me. It's crazy to read these verses because my default is the mind of Adam and not the mind of Christ. So we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to follow the descent of Christ. And lastly, we need to rejoice in the name of Christ. See, it's not enough to choose death. We need to rejoice in his name and who he is. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father exalts Christ and gives him the name Lord of all. Now, this is so scandalous. It would be so scandalous to both Jew and Greek alike. For the Philippians, they were Roman citizens, which meant they knew, they knew deep down that Caesar was Lord, that he was their ruler, their hero. He was Lord of all. Heroes in the Roman world, they were people like Alexander the Great, Caesar, Augustus. They brought peace. They brought a form of unity to the empire, to the Roman world through conquest and ruling with an iron fist. But here comes Paul saying that God has bestowed on Jesus his name. That Jesus is Lord because he has descended. Paul is saying that God, well God is declaring in Christ that this is what true global sovereignty looks like. Remember, the type of unity that you have will depend on the type of mind that you share. The mind of Christ would have been unintelligible to encultured Philippians in the first century. They would find it unfathomable to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, a crucified Messiah as Lord. But it also would have been scandalous to the Jews. That word Lord, well, this was used in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, as the equivalent for Yahweh. First century Jews would would have seen this, well, as the name of God. To say Jesus Christ is Lord is to declare that he is God. But Paul, he goes further. He does something that would have rocked their world. So it will come up on the screen. Isaiah 42. The Jews, they would have known these verses. When God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. And then in Isaiah 45, a couple chapters later. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Why? For I am God. There is no other. Okay, yeah, yeah, we get it. By myself I've sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Hear this. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Whoa. Paul is saying that God has exalted Christ and given him the name he gives to no other such that every knee will bow to Christ, every tongue confess. To the Jew, this would have been astounding and amazing. But don't miss this. Why does God give him this name? Why does God give him this status? Why is Jesus known this way? Key word. Paul says, therefore. The word is so important. 
as we move from verse 8, the descent, into verse 9, it's not just sequential. We can be prone to read, therefore, as then. You know, Jesus went down, 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 then God raised him up, up, up. But no, no, no. God gave him this name because he emptied himself. What's the point? The vindication and exaltation of Christ mean that God looks at Christ's descent and he sees that and he says, worthy. Worthy of my name. That is what I am like. This is the perfect revelation of who I am. That's why God gets the glory when Jesus is worshipped. In every knee bowing to Jesus, God the Father gets glory because that is what he is like. God is a self-giving God. Jesus is the perfect self-expression of the true God. This is what God is like. Rejoicing in Christ's name means understanding that this is who God is. Friends, this is the main point of our whole time this morning. If you get this, you'll get what I want you to, to get. That this descent is what God is like. This is why we should have his mind. This is why we should follow him on this descent. Because this is what he is like. And when we get this, all the commands before and after this passage make sense. See, it's not that we're called to this you know, challenging lifestyle of self-denial, and then we'll be honored in heaven. First the cross, then the crown. No, no, no. That's not pouring out. That's wise investment strategy. No, no, no. This lifestyle of self-denial is what heaven is like. Heaven is heavenly because God is a self-giving God. And marvel of marvels, we get to live as citizens now. We are the new humanity when we live with the mind of Christ. C.S. Lewis, he picks up on this in his Mere Christianity. The way he connects these two things, it's very prescient. But he says, the Christian belief is that if we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ, we shall also share in his conquest of death and find a new life, and in it become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. This means something much more than our trying to follow his teachings. People often ask when the next step in evolution is, the, the step to something beyond man, when that will happen. But on the Christian view, it has happened already. In Christ, a new kind of man appeared, and the new kind of life which began in him is to be put into us. I mean, read tech magazines, science magazines, they're always asking about the next step in evolution, augmented reality and cyborgs and, you know, humans becoming more than humans. No, no, no. Lewis says it's already happened in Christ. He is the new humanity that we all look for and look to and look forward to being. He's tapping into this passage, into Philippians 2. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul commands that we have it, and in the same breath he says we can have it in Jesus. How? We need to rejoice in his name. When we see his descent as beautiful, as worthy of bowing our knees to him, well, not just our heads, 
in our mind, not just our hands and our following and our doing, but our hearts will be knit to him. Having this mind means rejoicing in his name. Having this mind means bowing our knee and confessing with our tongue and loving it. Having this mind means cherishing Christ's descent, not as an ugly and unfortunate stop on a longer path to glory, but instead as the essence of who God is. Christ is the name above every name, not after he was obedient to death, but because he was obedient to death. Have you read Revelation 4? The Apostle John is let in in a vision, let into the throne room of heaven. And this, this worship service is going on and there's a multitude of the redeemed bowing down. And there are scores of heavenly beings bowing down and they're all singing, Worthy! Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. They worship Him for His dying, not after His dying. Rejoicing in his name is essential because it allows you to have the mind of Christ and follow the descent of Christ in the most difficult situations possible. And that is when your suffering is anonymous, unknown, or overlooked. See, if we think our descent, our suffering, our dying, our pouring out will somehow have a positive impact on others, well, then we may find motivation in the sense, you know, the sense of altruism or some other way of feeling good about ourselves. We can tell ourselves, you know, we're doing good. Now, that's not all bad. But what about the countless times in life when we will be called to suffer in silence? Or we're unsure if any good will come of it? What then? You know, when we're up in the middle of the night, again, Another night with a sick kid. It's been several nights like this with no end in sight, and you are so fatigued and so exhausted. And you hear the, the cry, and you get up, and you look over, and you realize oh, you're, you know, your spouse is oh, death, in the death sleep because they took a sleeping pill, and you're like, oh, it's on me. And you get up, and you grab that kid, and you're caring for them, and they're screaming, and they're feverish, and they do not appreciate you. And yet we patiently give ourselves to them. How do we keep going in that moment? We're not being seen. We're not being noticed. We're not being appreciated. You have to tell your spouse in the morning how many times you got up because they did not see it. Okay, when we're caring for an elderly parent or grandparent and we're, we're helping them die comfortably. You know, at least with the baby, we're helping them live here. We have to wonder sometimes, what's, what's it for? When we love our enemy. We go out of our way to love our enemy or, or to love our wayward children. And we're, we're hoping that our kindness will lead them to repentance. You know, they'll see our sacrifice. And they'll open their eyes to the recalcitrant ways and, and, and they'll, you know, repent on the spot because of our amazing example. No, no, no. Rather than that, they double down on their sin. And they, they actually exploit our kindness when we love them. Well, then what? I mean, you may ask, well, what's it all for? Why keep going? How can I keep going? When we continue praying for a family member to come to Christ, we have been praying 
and we have been praying, and we have been praying, and it seems like for decades we have been praying, and we know that, that to pray again kind of opens up that wound of disappointment. It, it hurts to pray again because we're still waiting. How do you keep going? How, how, do, you, how do you suffer in that way and keep getting on your knees and praying for them? How do you do it? When we pour out and we give with no expectation of return, no expectation of appreciation, or even notice at all, how? How do we keep loving and follow that descent down? How do we do it? When we have some information, we know something that nobody else does, maybe in the conflict or there's, there's strife. But we keep it back. We keep it to ourselves rather than blurting it out because we know that saying something would only be to protect ourselves, protect our reputation, our dignity. How do we keep silent? How do we hold back? Cost to ourselves. How do we descend? How can we do it, friends? How can we follow Christ on that descent, on that death? It's by rejoicing in His name. We do it because we are bowing our knees, not to these situations, but to Christ. We die for Him, to the glory of God the Father, because that is what He is like. When you are consumed with love and passion for this Lord, this Christ, well, then you will understand that this is the very essence of what it means to be in Christ. You will understand that this is what it means to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. You will understand that the call to humility, it's not hard because it's costly and we just need to you know, grit our teeth and pay that cost. No, no, no. The call to humility is hard and costly, but so worth it. We see Jesus in it, in all his lordship, to the glory of God the Father. Church, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let me pray.